Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now here at the top, I want to remind everyone, as I do every week, about the Power Hour's email account. Now, Travis, I know this is your favorite part, so have at it. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Did I do it right? That sounds good to me. Nice. We want to hear from you we have to hear from you. We want to bring you the content that you want, and the only way we know what that is is for you to reach out. Or you can just write to say hello, whatever. My promise is that either way, if you email us, it will not just go into a black hole. I will respond, or Travis will respond, or Rachel will respond. Someone will respond, but probably me. Now, Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jack. How are you? I am outstanding. I'm excited. I think today is a topic that is right down your alley, so I hope you're ready. I'm ready. All right. Travis, my man, are you fired up about today's show? So much. I think it's going to be a good one. Are you fired up about it? Just I very said much? Absolutely so much. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to start you off with a joke to put you in the mood of today's top for today's topic. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. How many bureaucrats... Does it take to screw in a light bulb? Mm. I, I'm going to guess too many, but I feel like you have a better punchline. You're half right. Two. One to assure everyone that everything possible is being done while the other screws the bulb into a water faucet. <laughs> Good, right? I think you just explained U.S. energy policy right there. I did. Now, I'm not one to predict the future, but if I were, I'd predict that we may get one or two epic rants from this conversation right here. I can virtually guarantee that I have at least one in me today. So what's on tap? Were you, ask, was, were you about well, to ask what's I, on tap? No, I was just going to say I'm, I'm good for one rant, too. I was going to say you don't want to miss a Jack Spencer rant. Oh, hey, well, Rachel, I'm... ask me what's on tap. <laughs> what's on tap? <laughs> We're going to talk about how government bureaucrats and politicians, those insufferable busybodies, those arrogant, know-it-all, self-important, paternalistic authoritarians in the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency make each of our lives more expensive, less efficient, and just generally more frustrating than it needs to be. And they do all of this in the name of helping us and protecting us? Please. We are going to get to the point, we are getting close to the point, of having to ask, Mother, may I buy a washing machine? Mother, may I build a fence? Mother, may I drive a car? Is that what we want? And more rules and regulations are coming down the pike every single day. So we are not just going to talk about all of the garbage spewing from the government offices of Washington, D.C., but how these policies drive up our prices, reduce our consumer choice, make us more dependent on foreign adversaries, and impede innovation. Now, Rachel, I wanted to ask you something. Then we're going to come back. I'm going to ask you something. I hope you give me an answer. Then we're going to circle back to this thing. 
Do you have yourself there one of those, uh, what do they call them, Google machines? I sure do. Could you look something up for me? Sure can. Look up the definition of authoritarian. Now, we didn't plan this. I want to see what Google says about what is authoritarian. Google says authoritarian is favoring or enforcing strict obedience to authority, especially that of the government, at the expense of personal freedom. That's what Google says? That's what Google says. We're going to have a conversation today. Then at the end, we're each going to ask if whether or not we are being ruled by authoritarians or at least authoritarian adjacent people. So remember that. To avoid an hour of just me screaming about the government, which I'm sure you've already had enough of, about bureaucrats being horrible, I thought we should bring in a guest that can actually level up the conversation. <laughs> to do that, I'm very excited to introduce Nick Loris, Vice President of Public Policy at C3 Solutions. Welcome, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So a couple of things. First, Nick is a longtime friend. I don't know if he will admit it, but I will. We worked together for a long time on a bunch of issues. Second, that I know Nick is not why we asked him to be here on the Power Hour. Travis, you know this. We reject cronyism. That's outright. right. Absolutely. That I know Nick has nothing to do with anything. Because aside from being a friend, I can say that Nick has a long career in this field that's marked by three principles. I'm going to speak for you for a second, but by all means, tell me how wrong I am after the fact. First, he cares deeply about human freedom and economic liberty. True. Second, he understands the importance of a healthy environment. Also true. And lastly, Nick's work shows that not only does one of those things not have to come at the expense of the other, but in fact, their relationship is symbiotic. Three for three, a real Ken Griffey Jr. Did you know that I knew that word? I did not. Symbiotic, there you go. Learn something new you every day. You didn't even ask Rachel to look that one up. Did I use it we, right? We could. No, I think I think you that used it right. I think All that right. was perfect. But this is a high risk environment using words that Rachel doesn't look up. True. True. We all have our role. Now the last thing I'll say is that I'm not the only one that thinks no, Nick knows his stuff. He regularly testifies before Congress. If you can imagine such a thing, this guy sits before Congress, tells him what he thinks. The dude is on TV, radio, like all the time, and he's a prolific writer. You do it all. Now, we in this studio all know you, Nick, but I'd like the, our audience to get to know you just a skosh better. We're not going to spend all day talking about how great you are. We've already done that enough. But let's just learn what it is you do, who you work for. So what's your job at this place, C3? Yeah, well, C3 is the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, which, uh, you know, if you listen to that name, you might have this uh, knee-jerk reaction that when you hear climate solutions, you hear the very things you warned about uh, in the first place, which is authoritarian policy, big government policy, climate policy, often synonymous with big government, with subsidies, with mandates, with more regulations. We're trying to flip the script on that and say, if you care about climate change, you need to care about economic freedom. And if you care about economic freedom, you also need to bear, be concerned about climate change, because ultimately, if you care about human flourishing, if you care about improving the environment, and if you care about reducing emissions, which some may or may not, you need to care about economic freedom and the policies rooted in economic freedom is the way you'll get there. Now, I'm not going to get into a big debate about climate change. That's not what we're here to talk about. Different folks in, on the conservative side have different views. I have mine. So we'll leave that at that for now. 
more important, I want to know for now, how did you end up there? Well, I spent 12 years at the Heritage Foundation. Really? Yeah, I sure did. How about that? Yeah. Working on a wide range of energy and environment policy, free market environmentalism, natural resource policy, energy subsidies. This new organization, newish I should say, uh, is about three years old. Um, I worked uh, with a a former colleague, uh, Drew Bond, who was the chief of staff uh, to Ed Fulner, uh, former president of the Heritage Foundation. And founder. uh, And founder of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, He started this organization understanding that there is growing support among Republicans. You have 80-some members in the Conservative Climate Caucus who are looking for solutions, who are looking for alternatives to big government climate policy. Uh, And so I left Heritage uh, about two years ago to the day uh, to help formulate some of the public policies that would help get them there, talking about reducing regulatory barriers to energy innovation, talking about more competition, more choice in energy markets that ultimately gets us to more affordable, reliable power, but also gets us to a cleaner environment. And so we tackle a wide range of energy and environmental policies, everything from nuclear to a little bit of dabbling in electricity market policy, uh, agriculture, uh, forest management. We try to cover it all. And we also try to be a voice for good policies that already exist out there. You know, I've relied on Heritage a lot for their policies with regarding uh, nuclear power, uh, the stuff that you've worked on in the past, Jack. Uh, but as well as former colleague Katie Tubb has, has written a lot on nuclear power that we just think are very good policy reforms that are very much needed. Um, NEPA reform is something that Heritage has covered extensively. The National what? Environmental Policy Act, which is uh, you know one of the biggest frustrations to energy development and to building new, more efficient infrastructure, to relying on yeah, experts like Travis on electricity policy. So we want to be a voice for good economic policies that are out there that will help with human flourishing, that will help with energy abundance, and that will help improve the environment. All right. All right. That makes sense, I guess. I mean, the climate stuff, <laughs> but whatever. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We I, get, Even if we don't agree on the climate science stuff and we maybe have that conversation, maybe not, the reality is there's a market for climate solutions that are rooted in free market principles. Uh, and the more I talk to members and, and visit with Hill offices, they say, you know, we don't like carbon taxes. We don't like these energy subsidies, but we're increasingly hearing from town halls that we need a solution. And so we're trying to make sure that when these members of Congress, and some of them are Democrats, too, I shouldn't just say it's Republicans, when some of these members are saying we need solutions, that they aren't abandoning those free market solutions principles. Solutions to what? Solutions to uh, a healthier environment, so solutions okay. to reducing emissions, understanding that this is a, What's a, the right a amount global of challenge. What is the right of amount of emissions? Yeah, that's I mean, a you want question. to reduce them. Well, I do, I do want to reduce them. I think that's a difficult question to answer because you have to understand the trade-offs that come with reducing emissions. And so I think there's ways in which you can reduce emissions that reduce the tail risks of climate change, those really low probability, high impact events. And we already see those probabilities are shrinking already, which is good news. But you can reduce emissions to a point where you reduce some of the risks and costs of more warming when you're talking about three to four degrees Celsius warming, but also doing so in a way that allows for more people to get access to affordable, reliable energy. I keep trying to take us off of this issue and you keep bringing it up. (laughs) It's all I can do 
as the host to just let it lie. We're going to move on. Sounds good. Let's talk about all the good policies. So if, and if, all the problems. And the bad policies. And the pro, that's when I, actually I meant the bad policies. You're welcome. And focus on <laughs> all the things that I think we agree on. Now, Travis, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to, I was going to offer just a thought here. When you guys were about to debate on climate policy. I think you're going to say something pro-global warming so I can debate you. Let's go. <laughs> oh, no. No, I, I mean pro-global warming. I am actually pro-global warming. <laughs> I don't think there's anything for us to debate, Jack. But here's what I think. Nick brings up a good point. It's not about what you like, Jack, to paraphrase Joe Dirt, the fireworks scene. It's a really good movie. It's not about what you like, Jack. It's about the consumer. People to varying degrees, are interested in addressing the climate issue. I think that's important to acknowledge. I think you and yes. I come at this issue from a different place, but some people are very concerned. So let's... Uh... I totally agree. Nick, don't listen to this. This is not for, for Nick. This is not for Nick's consumption. I'm turning these headphones into earmuffs. <laughs> yes, there is a growing market for that because they've been propagandized for 30 years about this alleged issue. So, if including we, by our authoritarian government, we'll, well, we haven't made that determination. Yet. Let's have the cons, this conversation. Then we'll determine oh, I whether or not we're I dealing with authoritarian. I I came to that a long time not ago. Me. I okay. have an open mind about this. I'm very open about about the possibility of the politicians, bureaucrats, special interests, and cronies operating in my own interests and being altruistic in their behavior. You, right. you are known for your open mindedness, Jack. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some specifics here, some things that are happening right now, because there's just this wave after wave after wave of regulation and rules and mandates and bad policy coming. So let's let's talk about some of those. I know everyone in this room is working on them. So, Nick, we'll start with you as our guest. What are some of the big ones that 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 you're thinking about or just name one or however you want to? Or I can ask you about one specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the policies at the forefront that we don't like are, you know, the gas stove bans, um, the subsidies and mandates to push people into electric vehicles. And, you know, we're certainly not anti-electric vehicles. Uh, we're certainly not anti-electric or induction stoves. But it's when the government forces people into those decisions, not only is that bad for consumer choice? It raises prices. It can have negligible uh, or adverse environmental effects. I also just don't think it's good climate policy strategy. You know, if you're talking about telling people what to eat, telling people what to drive, telling them which stove to use, that is such a turnoff to any consumer who's interested in climate policy. The more you're trying to mandate decisions onto consumers and households, and they're not realizing any of the environmental benefits. That's why you have people angry uh, with climate policy in the United States. That's why you have yellow vest protests in places like Paris, or you know, uh, they have uh, you know people in the streets in in the Netherlands and the Dutch protests over forcing people to farm a specific way. That's just terrible policy, uh, and it's not doing people any good. And so th those are the policies I'm most concerned about: is the ones that really impact consumer choice. I think on the flip side, I'm excited by you know the excitement around nuclear policy and all of the reforms that are needed to give it a chance to compete in the marketplace and permitting reform and making sure it's done right and then we actually have comprehensive permitting reform. Even things like good tax policy, 
uh, if you look at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed under President Trump, had an immediate expensing provision that allowed companies to deduct deduct costs in the year that they were incurred rather than depreciating them over time. People don't think of that as good environmental policy, but it incentivizes investments in more efficient equipment and buildings and HVACs and things like that. It's those pro-growth policies that uh, really have me excited and I think people can really rally around, again, whether or not they care about climate change as a problem they think are just good economic policy. So there's a lot to be frustrated by with the government's continuous intervention into energy markets, but I think there's also a lot to be excited about by because of all of the ways the government gets in the way. You're far less cynical than me. You have a, like a- I'm an optimist. An, an opti- <laughs> I do. I, 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 I am optimistic generally, but God, it's hard in the near or midterm to be optimistic. Um, you mentioned a whole bunch of stuff there, a whole bunch of implications. Let's take just a few minutes and maybe use a couple of these examples to dig a little bit deeper to explore how they affect people. Like, for example, you mentioned the gas, uh, the, 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 um, the gas stoves. We can look at uh, those specifically or just there's all these appliance regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, like the DOE... The Department of Energy, who over who who is in tight who is authorized to impose these mandates, put forth literally hundreds of page long justifications for how these things will. Well, you, but Rachel, why don't you talk about it a little bit? Because I know you spend a lot of time on this. Sure. Why don't you give us a brief overview of some of the different efficiency sure. regs, where they come from, like what DOE, how they justify then we'll all scream about it yeah i was gonna say i'd love to talk specifically about the natural gas related um energy efficiency mandates especially because we're seeing that at the state level too it's not just at the federal level right we're seeing states actually taking steps to ban conventional fuels in different ways um but like jack mentioned nick mentioned this is just one example of that i mean the dishwashers energy efficiency Uh, Mandates just came out a couple days ago, um, just, again, regulating down to the amount of water that these dishwashers can use, um, slashing those federal limits, and then that has a whole series of other implications. Um, Specifically, as Nick was mentioning, how that impacts consumer choice, which is a huge emphasis that we're making here with a lot of these, these regulations. So I'd love to hear, Nick, how you can kind of talk about how these these regulations affect consumers because I think that it's hard sometimes for people to conceptualize these big government policies, how they actually impact your day-to-day life. Yeah, well, I think anyone who runs a dishwasher now and it takes two hours for the entire cycle to complete understands how this impacts people's lives. It, you know, I think people inherently like saving money on energy bills. Uh, you know, they consider fuel efficiency, they consider water use, energy use, but they also consider a whole number of other things when they're buying a vehicle, um, whether it be safety or the, you know, the fact that they have kids. Um, when they run a dishwasher or buy a dishwasher, you know, whether they want it to run, you know, in an hour rather than two hours. And so to have the government take those decisions out of your hands to save, you know, maybe 10 cents of water per cycle, uh, if that, Um, is preposterous. And I think what the government also usually doesn't understand is those unintended (coughs) consequences that come as a result 
of these forced mandates. You know, the, the longer these dishwasher cycles take, for instance, you know, people are going to turn to washing dishes in the sink, which is by far the most inefficient way to wash dishes. And so there's a, a whole number of problems, cost um, being at the forefront. It, it raises the sticker price of these appliances of vehicles, and therefore people hold on to their appliances longer, so there's less turnover. So that creates inefficiencies. Um, the, the consumer choice angle, I think, is paramount as well. And so when you're artificially increasing the cost as a result of these regulations and it has these ripple effects throughout consumer choice, um, this is very problematic and, again, not good economic or environmental policy. Well, it's not just the price of the new appliance either. It's if people know that the new appliance is going to suck, if it's going to be worse at the thing, like not as good at washing dishes, for example, that's why you hold on to the existing appliance. And so you keep the, uh, I don't want to say inefficient because I'm like borrowing government words here, keep your existing stuff for longer just because you know the new one is, is not as good. And that's kind of, I think it plays into the sense that people feel like things just don't work that well anymore. That's not a natural thing. I think it's a consequence of these types of rules. Everything is just so bogged down in the red tape of trying to be more energy efficient, water efficient, and things like that. And we can't use the same kinds of soaps that we used to because that, you know, the, the most effective soaps are banned now. It's kind of like it plays into this idea that things are getting worse. And in fact, most things are getting better all the time. It's these things that are subject to hundreds of pages of DOE rules. That's, that's the stuff that, uh, that bogs us down. Yeah, and it, it's because the manufacturers are no longer innovating towards meeting consumer demand, but rather innovating towards meeting the preferences of some bureaucrat down at the Department of Energy. Oh, yeah, the scope of innovation itself, you know, it's very constrained because you're just trying to meet the standards. You're not trying to do new cool stuff. The stand, it's standard defined in the most god-awful way you can meet standard, as in <laughs> government standard. Mandatory, awful, authoritarian regulations. However, yeah, whichever words you want to use. Now, Nick brought something up that I think is interesting. You were speaking in terms of economic and environmental policy, but you said something that has far more implications for cultural policy. You said these dishwashers, because they become less efficient over time, I don't know, you said they take longer over time, that people are beginning to, and I've heard about this too, um, wash dishes in the sink. I, I've seen it in my own household. One of the great liberators of, of, uh, in American society is the mechanization of household chores, things that traditionally fell, rightly or wrongly, just reality, to one gender versus another. And um, as with all of this garbage, it's so regressive in every possible way. Um, and that's just one more. And it's across the board. The EV mandates give fewer people access to mobility. The, the appliance mandates give fewer people access to mechanization. The, um, just whatever mandate it is, the only people it benefits is those at the top and those in power. What do you think of that, Travis? Are you buying what I'm selling? Oh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I, I What I think, too, this is broadly about energy costs in general. Like, Energy is, you know, in terms of the physics, ability to do work. You're basically outsourcing your own labor to, you know, some kind of, whether it's a car, whether it's uh, an appliance, that's a good thing. 
we should want to use more of it. So anything that raises the cost of energy cripples your ability to outsource your own work to something that can do it sort of while you uh, while you sleep or watch TV or you know do other productive things. Do whatever you want, and that's the freedom element. It's like if you're if you're stuck doing manual labor all the time. That's yet that's the thing that I think this is time for me to go on a rant. I've made this rant before, but rant it's, three. It, it's worth it's worth saying again. I think this this whole idea of DOE saving you money is absurd and it's upside down. And pointed out again. If they call it a saving, if you use less energy, that was the whole point of the appliance. You want to use energy to do a thing. Would it still be a saving if they basically took all your appliances and threw them in the trash? Hey, you're not using energy. You're using elbow grease in the sink. Uh, Is that a savings to you? Sorry, that was rhetorical check. It's not a savings to you, but that's how they calculate it. So I I just, I, I reject the whole premise that the DOE ought to be saving you on energy use. The whole point is to use energy to that, improve our lives. Or that it can. Now, Rachel, what are your thoughts on it, like on this whole sort of issue? Well, I wanted to kind of circle back to the innovation piece here, um, because I think a lot of people might look at this and say, well, why is it so bad to encourage these companies to innovate by introducing regulation? Um, And Nick, I know you've done some work on this and kind of talking about how these free market environments actually encourage better innovations, make the environment cleaner, have better outcomes. And you kind of talked about that a little bit in terms of, okay, now people are going to go wash their dishes in the sink, and that's actually worse in terms of, of water use. So can you talk a little bit more in that innovation side of it and how and how these regulations are actually kind of anti innovation, not forcing these manufacturers in the the right direction. Yeah, I think, you know, and and to reiterate what Jack and Travis said, I think a lot of times the manufacturers will will make their product to the standard rather than what the consumers may actually want. And when those standards don't exist, you see manufacturers making a product that ultimately is what the consumers want. And if not, they're not going to be in business much longer. And so that's what the market decides and the ultimate arbiter of the marketplace is to try to make products and innovate in ways that are you know fundamental in discovery and create these breakthrough technologies that the government could never imagine in their lab when they're you know running different microwaves at you know different times of the day to figure out how we can save the most energy efficiency they're working to create products that could fundamentally change the landscape. I mean, the induction stove um, and the fact that they are starting to take off more in the marketplace wasn't the result of any type of government mandate or policy. It was just because innovators thought they could come up with a stove uh, that people would like that was clean and efficient and that could heat water uh, faster than an electric or a gas stove. And so that's what the market provides. And I think the fundamental problem with a lot of these policies is they were all born out in this era where we thought we were running out of energy. And even if they, we thought we were running out of energy, these policies made no sense to begin with because the market would figure out ways to supply more energy. And the ironic thing now is that it's the government that's really doing the restricting of energy supplies, why we might be running out of energy by taking areas off limits to natural resource development and offshoring some of that energy to areas that have worse environmental standards. So not only are we not capitalizing on our 
energy abundance here in the United States, but we're making the environment worse off. And that is an aside from your original question. But I think the more we can actually just let the market do what it does and provide for the needs of consumers and some businesses will succeed and some will fail. Some consumers will want greener products and some won't. That's ultimately how best the market will provide more innovative technologies that consumers actually want. I would just add on to that. One of the things that is a reality, not only um, does the does a free market provide greater innovation to, towards expanding the things that people and businesses want, but when government get involved, gets involved, not only does it deny us access to those things, but Nick was mentioning different types of stoves that have emerged. Once they, once that, once the technology becomes subject to regulation, the innovation stops. I mean, th at that point, the the technologies that meet the DOE's mandate basically ends. Like that's all they have to do. So that's what you're stuck with forever. Um, so it's it not only doesn't drive innovation forcibly stops innovation and it take it to the extent any innovation occurs it's just to meeting the government standard not what people want and i think we see that with energy subsidies too it's just that you know not only does it uh value um what the government values by you know biofuel renewable fuel mandates or energy subsidies not only do these technologies not compete in the marketplace without the subsidy, but it entrenches them where they worry more about securing the next subsidy uh, while shielding out competition who doesn't get that subsidy. So I think you see the adverse impacts on energy innovation, not just as a result of these regulations, but a lot of the policies that pick winners and losers, too. Now, you mentioned a word in there, competition. Um, competition is one of the most important aspects of the American economy, of, of Western economies. And it seems like that the government does so much now to push down, to tamp down competition. And we see it in all aspects of the economy, certainly in energy and environment. And my, this question is for both Nick and Travis, both of you who are economists. Can you talk us a little bit through about why competition is so important, how these regulations curtail it, sort of talk that piece of it a little bit. Travis is a real economist, so I'll let him go first. Uh, I thought you're, 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 don't you have some sort of? I've got a master's degree in economics. I know. Yeah. Same, that's all I've got. Okay. <laughs> that's as far as it's worth taking. All the yeah. PhD folks say they're just really good at math. But yeah, I, I, the answer on competition really is, I think Nick nailed it, where basically you have companies that instead of worrying about serving consumer demand, they're chasing subsidies and so you see that in the power sector too where the so-called inflation reduction act is throwing you know the estimate now is like 1.2 trillion dollars with that kind of money on the table of course i mean in terms of the rational profit maximization function of these companies they're going to go after the subsidies instead of you know if those weren't on the table they'd have to actually get people to voluntarily hand over their money as opposed to first being stolen by government yeah i said stolen and then hand it to them. I think confiscated is the word we like to use. In okay. Legalized plunder. Yeah. Plundered away from them and then handed to the company. It's like the government is this weird middleman where they just they take your money and give it to a company instead of like there should be, as Nick said, there should be a dynamic process of companies 
trying really hard to satisfy a consumer demand, and the ones that are bad at it, they go away. That's the one thing that the government doesn't do. When it's bad at something, oh, it sticks around. You know, all of the the agencies that should probably go away because they're terrible. Let's uh, let's just throw out there. Maybe maybe the DOE or some parts of it, but that that whole cut. Oh, all whole, right. Oh, that, blah, 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 blah. But the competition, <laughs> the competition answer is it's a dynamic process that results in people getting what they want, as opposed to the government approach, which is the exact opposite: okay. giving people okay. what they don't want. Okay. Okay. I'm already having to deal with Loris over here and his climate change stuff. Now you, God, I can't believe I heard you say this. DOE, or some of it, might need to be gotten rid of. Are you what parts? Are you what parts, are you on record about to wanting have, to disband the NNSA? Let's let's go. Let's start there. That's like forty percent of the budget. You separate it out and get rid of the rest. Okay, so we're on we're on we're on the same page that the NNSA, NNSA should be its own NNSA, separate agency. I, I, I'm not. I don't do national security stuff around here, so it would be far be it from me to leave my lane. But we should probably defend NNSA that. was not a tra- was not traditionally part of DOE or its predecessors. It was put. It was glommed on there after the fact. Yeah, the DOE so, org act should probably be rescinded too. Let's let's just, let's just destroy that, everything. There's not one thing that god awful department, that department that defines the authoritarian description that Rachel gave us earlier. I don't know any like. If DOE stopped to, I like the national labs. Of course you do. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) Of course you do. I'm just gonna go out there and say it. All right, let's talk national labs just for a moment. I agree that there. First of all, when people say national labs, it's it's a it's a uh, it misrepresents what we're talking about because people think Lawrence the nuclear weapons labs. I agree; those have a role to play. Let's take the three national security labs off. The table for a moment. They went away with NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration. That for for people who don't know, that's the entity within the government that is responsible for nuclear weapons, the nuclear navy, all the nuclear stuff. That got attached to the Department of Energy, um, or the NNSA was created post a um, a espionage incident back in the late '90s. Um, and uh, so put NNSA to the side, and their national labs. The rest of the national labs, what do they do that's so important, Mr. I love the national labs, Nick Loris? You know, it's a great question. Mr. Big Government. Yeah. Call me Mr. Big Government. Go for it. What else do you want to say? Just so people know, I'm teasing, Nick. We're all joking here. That could could actually sound good. He's got a knife to my neck, but we're all Nick the lab lover, Loris. No, let's let's have a real conversation about national labs. What role should they You know, I do think the national labs play a very valuable role in research and development for discovery for purposes just for you know explore science for science sake uh, you know i think how, that how a, big is our deficit right now oh gosh it's come big on. it's very big it's yeah. big didn't you read paul winfrey's stuff you know it's yeah. not it's not about the department of energy spending it's all about you know those other entitlement programs. That's what Let's every big them. government yeah. bureaucrat and politician says. It's not my office. If it was, it's, it's all up. the other okay. stuff. It's not me. There's only one person First here all, I know worked at the Department of Energy. It so, wasn't me. Yeah, just not saying. not for money. Yeah, it was me. I did it. Yeah, and, and well, I, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> 
Wasn't that a lot of fun? I mean, for, I guess we, so, we can talk. I worked there for the Trump transition, and Travis, you worked there for that and officially. When I say worked, so, yeah, I, I we, wasn't paid. We, I wasn't a we paid were, employee. We were volunteers supported by our different think tanks at the time. Right. I, of course, am a public servant, so I went and served the public at the DOE. Jack, not so much. He just went back to Heritage. When I was there, you were there with me at all those meetings. I was oh, it serving, was amazing. It was I was amazing. serving the public hard. So, yeah, Jack's question for everybody, and I guess we can we can put this out as prep for the next transition in case you have a meeting with Jack. His question was, what do you do? And it was with every office. Like, what do you do that the private sector can't do better? And everybody stumbled. Like, they weren't talking to each other about the questions. Like, they could have just done a little bit of prep and said, here's my reason for my office existing and blah, 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 blah. Instead, there it was just blank stares. It was like, uh, we, but you know, Congress did a thing, and now we have to do it. That was kind of the answer. Instead yeah. of, I don't think that's the thing. I'm not sure anybody really believed in the mission the way that you were expecting them to. No, no one had a good reason. No one had a good narrative. I mean that in the best possible terms, not in a pejorative. A good narrative of what their role is, how it interacts with the larger economy, and what. Is there value added? They, 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 for the most part, I shouldn't say they, because everyone, of course, is an individual, even bureaucrats, um, for the most part. Um, they were so part of the system. Like, they were so part of that machine. And it was really disheartening. So whenever we're talking about the national labs, look, I know there are great people at the labs. I know that there's great work to be done and great work that is done. And one of the things, I, one of the, projects that we worked on together, Nick, that I was always most proud of was thinking through how better to use those resources. One of the problems I see, and this I know that this isn't where you're coming from, but you used words that are similar to what other people use, which is um, for basic research, for research stuff, you know, for, I forget exactly, but a lot of people think of them in that term, in those terms, as a broad justification for the footprint to be as it is. And because people love it, it gets a political constituency so that there's no room for any of the structural reforms that would allow the government to structure the lab system in a way that made them both efficient from a, a, uh, a governance standpoint and to pull out of them all of the things that could be privatized. Yeah, I think that's right. And I honestly think if you talk to people at the National Labs, you know, we did um, talk to people at the Department of Energy, they understand that. I think all of the frustrations that we talked about in the beginning of this podcast about um, micromanagement, bureaucracy, uh, you know, all of these things that inhibit innovation is happening within the DOE structure. And, you know, I, I find a lot of value in the National Labs, and I think there's even more potential there. But they're kind of getting crushed by their own weight of bureaucracy and micromanagement um, from everything from the appropriations process to the way they interact with each other, the way they interact with other agencies. And to no fault of their own, it's just inherent in government bureaucracy. And so I think that's part of the frustration. But at the same time, I do see it as an opportunity. I'd rather try to fix some of those bureaucracies rather than, you know, shut it all down. Let me ask you this, This and this is a sincere question. It's going to sound like certainly in the context of the conversation we've been having, I'm trying to put you in a corner, which I'm not. Um, what are some of the things that you think the National Labs do that is worth doing from a public policy standpoint 
And I'm going to probably come back at you and say, why can't the private, if it's so good, why can't the private sector do it? Yeah, I, I so don't, yeah. Convince it, me. Partly might not be that the private sector can't do it. Um, although there's probably some arguments that the private sector wouldn't do it because some of the lab infrastructure is so expensive. But you could see some sort of private company consortium invest in some of this infrastructure if they thought it was all beneficial. I mean, we heard the same thing about space travel and look what SpaceX has done. So I don't necessarily know that it's not that the private sector can't do it or wouldn't do it. It's just that I'm okay with public expenditures being used for research and development to complement what the private sector is doing because of the potential for positive economic spillovers from that research and development and discovery and potential innovations that could come from it. I think that more of it is better than less of it, even if it comes at the expense of taxpayer dollars and having both public and private research entities. Go okay. for it. You can tell me I this. Know you, Where has that happened? Give me... Give me just a couple of examples of like this killing it, man. Like this is the way it should happen, and here's why. Like where's it working? Like in the Department of Energy? With the national labs. Well, you know, I think with the advanced photon light source, there's been some really interesting work basically from what it's helped discover from fundamental sciences to companies, you know, tapping into that advanced photon light source and, and using it for their own benefit and also paying for it has been one example. Uh, the Pele Project, which is okay. at Idaho National Laboratory, is a That's... defense reactor. But they're working with the Department of Energy National Lab. And I think that yes. has potential for national security purposes, but also could be important for small modular nuclear reactors going forward. Okay. On Pele, I agree with you, but Pele is a different, a different beast because Pele is a DOD program to meet a national security requirement not one of these DOE commercialization well, projects. Sure. You could look at Oklo's partnership with the National Labs then, too, who they're trying to use spent fuel for a micro-reactor. I think that could be potentially informative for both Oklo and for SMR technologies moving forward. Maybe. I mean, I guess you can, you could, you can pick things out that the National Labs have done. That's what you asked me to do. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. But I'm going to now, I'm gonna now say why that's illegitimate, the Oklo one specifically, or anything in the nuclear waste management. Uh, I don't want to pick on Oklo because Oklo does a lot of great work privately. But that's not a good example of why we should have this expansive National Labs because what that, what that relationship is, or anything that National Labs does with any private sector, on the nuclear waste front, front is purely a function of, of um, horrible underlying policy. The government has screwed up nuclear waste to the extent that there's no reason that any company would ever do anything in nuclear waste absent the government because the government's the customer for waste management and disposition. So that the that Oklo was working with DOE on that, I don't think justifies this massive DOE footprint. What it is, it's a, it's a manifestation or a symptom of a government-centric system, which is nuclear waste management, which is illegitimate. Sure. I'm serious. Yeah, like, no, yeah, that's fair. I just think we have this national lab infrastructure. I think it's valuable. Again, I don't necessarily want to turn it into a commercial factory where it's making widgets or it's pumping out or displacing what the private sector can do in energy markets or elsewhere. But I do think it does have certain capabilities 
to invest in infrastructure assets. And I, I think this is true not just for DOE's national labs, but just for national lab infrastructure kind of across the board, whether it's in health and medical, whether it's in, you know, at the National Science Foundation. I just think that is publicly beneficial to invest in research and development from a public good standpoint. All right. I, um, I'm i not against public spending. I mean, it's not public investment, let's be honest. You're using other people's money to try to uh, to achieve some political objective as opposed to me investing my money in order to re- get a gain. So need to push back on the language. Just a skosh there. Um, so I'm not against public spending on R&D. I'm against it being as much as it is and as interventionist as it is and not as focused as it should be, I think. So, but we don't, we don't need to get into all that today. Instead, what I think, we'll, 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 pull, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of close this subject on this idea. And you can, of course, tell me or anyone can tell me how dumb I am. Um, I'm not for just privatizing the national labs. What I am for is creating a system that identifies what's useful and what's not. I think that the basis of the National Lab System where most, I don't know, you, you, you probably know this, I don't know, most of the labs are associated with the university and the, um, the university, I think, I think that that's the, the better system, that these should be more closely associated, more university-based and less Washington, D.C.-based. And then to the extent that there are elements within the National Labs that have all this private potential they could be sold off or the 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 facilities can be rented or whatever i mean i don't know exactly i think that there's a there's a market process to rationalize the footprint and the problem that we have now is that they have such broad political support no one can do any real systemic change that would be my my closing argument yeah no i agree and i think um you know one of you mentioned the labs project we worked on and i'll just close with one of the ideas that it was yours that got a lot of attention from both the national labs and even folks within the Department of Energy was rather just having this kind of user cost recovery structure for when companies want to come in and use lab, lab assets to charge a market price for it. And therefore, you would help understand the private sector value of these national lab assets, which could ultimately mean they could be spun off into uh, fully privatized or if there was no interest and there was no interest from a, a government need standpoint, which isn't something we really talked about all that much, but I do think that's part of the other value of the national lab assets is to meet specific government needs that the private sector can't meet. Could be national security, Agreed. could be R&D. Hey, thanks. <laughs> um, but if, if they aren't meeting either of those objectives, then yeah, let's let's get rid of those assets and, and you know either shrink the size or allocate those resources to where they could be otherwise best used. So, well, I was going to try to bridge the gap, but you guys already agreed, so I don't need to do that anymore. But I do want to, I'll, I'll tell a story. So one of the briefings that I got when I was at DOE was from the Office of Science. And what the labs were doing were exploring this idea of dark matter and doing particle collisions <clears throat> and things like that. I think what I'm getting at here is the more basic the science and the more fundamental the R&D, the more I agree with it. And especially when you get into really weird stuff that doesn't immediately pay off in a commercial way, colliding dark matter particles is probably one of those things that it's hard to monetize. Yeah. But you could learn a lot of really interesting things from it. And so it's not immediately 
obvious how the private sector would be doing that. Uh, so, and I just also it was just one of those briefings where I was like, uh, I I watched the the show Stranger Things. I'm familiar with the upside down. That's kind of what this sounds like, and I don't fully understand it. And thank you for doing what you do, everybody. And and then I left the briefing, and I was like. My God, I do not understand anything about quantum mechanics. That's what they want you to think. That way, you're like, yeah, take my taxpayer money. That's no. how I felt. I'll take no. take my money, guys. So, so I hate to be like the guy who doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> but <laughs> what? Like, I'm I I am with you. That is worthy. That is an activity worthy of undertaking. Those types of activities. But why does it need to be funded? By the Department of Energy, and the, or I should say by the taxpayer. That is the type of thing that should live in the university. We should have a robust university research system. And, when, and there should be demand for that because you come to my university. Pay me lots of money because I'm doing dark matter stuff. It's awesome. I'm building photon lasers. Loris loves it. Come get your education here. Instead, the Department of Energy crowds all that out, and, and they are the one who, who dominates it. And they make us think they can best determine how to – how that – basic research capital flows because they're a bunch of bureaucrats and they know better like they know about us for the the washers and the dryers and the cars. What makes them so freaking smart to know how basic R&D should be done? That should all be done, I would argue, except for the national security stuff and the stuff that the government needs. Although the government doesn't need most of what it needs, but that's just for the sake of that argument. Everything else, like why and why shouldn't it exist in the in the university setting? Here's what I will commit to, Jack. If I ever become a multi-billionaire, I will fund some private research in this type of stuff. It'll be private, okay? I'm not yet I'm not a looking... multi-billionaire. But, I mean, who – so if you want a university to do it, I mean – I just think how, it would be how... better be done in that setting and that so long as de- – we've been convinced – not always. We didn't always have DOE doing it like – the, 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 the cavemen weren't sitting around being like, I have this square thing. I'd sure like to make it into a wheel. If only we had a Department of Energy. Like, they figured it out. People have been figuring stuff out for a long time without the Department of Energy. They somehow convinced us we need them to do this stuff. <laughs> that might have been DOT. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Bing. laughs> yeah, we didn't have any transportation before we had a Department of Transportation. I still remember when I was a kid, we, we came to D.C. and I was like, oh, that's the Department of Energy. That's where all the energy comes from. Must be. Right. Uh, yeah, I still think some people think in those terms, but yeah. Like electricity comes from the wall. Exactly. That's all you need to know. Hey, Nick, I got us way off track here. And we're almost <laughs> t- towards the end. <laughs> Tell me, first of all, is there anything that, that, that I led you, or I shouldn't say led you astray. It's not for me to lead you anywhere. But um, I don't want to have mischaracterized anything because I know I went in a bunch of different directions. You good with anything that you want to add to reframe or anything? And then we're going to get to the last quick se- segment because we're already over. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Well, Fun no, discussion. no, no. We're no. not doing that yet. I want to know, what, we, like, what should we do? Like, how do we fix this stuff? Real quick, like, what are some policy recommendations? What are the, what's the sort of thing? To get innovation back on track, you don't need to say privatize the national lab system. I know you're not there, <laughs> but just you know, give folks a, sort of a sense of how we can change things around. What do we need to do? Yeah, I mean, it, it really does boil down to getting the government out of the way. I mean, that's a large part of what we're focused on, uh, and incentivizing more innovation with good free market policies, where it's going to be 
you know, rising tides lift all boats and creating more competition and getting the rid of the policies that distort market competition. So that does boil down everything from the National Environmental Policy Act reform to reform at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to tax policy. Uh, it, it really is kind of all across the board. Um, reducing regulations and uh, lowering barriers to innovation is what we're focused on. And that would be a com- conversation for probably another podcast to really get into the weeds on some of these policy reforms. But if you want to check it out, it's at c3solutions.org is where we have a lot of our policy reforms. Um, we put together a climate and freedom agenda last year that was 10 chapters, 120 pages or so where, again, we pull from other organizations uh, and the work that they've done on energy and environment policy. The Property Environment Research Center was very helpful in the forest management. As I mentioned, Heritage's work on nuclear was very represented in the nuclear chapter. So uh, please check it out if you are looking for ideas for good economic policy, good energy policy that will also yield good environmental benefits. Is it okay if I put Nick on the spot just for a second? Yeah. Because I'm curious. So my... Short list definitely includes getting rid of the direct subsidies. So Inflation Reduction Act is sort of on on the chopping block in my mind. W- what does C3 say about things like the IRA? Yeah, I mean, we are very much against energy subsidies. We're for getting rid of subsidies for mature technologies. We have been more supportive of some of the programs in the IIJA, which I know you guys don't like, but like the small modular reactor demonstration program See, in like the, the government labs. distorting capital flows there toward we go. picking yes, winners and I losers do. that sort of thing. I love thing. it. Yes. Big pick big winner and loser big picking winner and loser kind of guy. guy. Yeah. All right, all right. Um but let's focus on what we agree on. Yeah. Win PTC. Get rid of it. Production tax credit. Yeah, get rid of it. It's been around since 1992 and we still we keep giving we keep shoveling money at that thing. We've well, been building small modular reactors since 1955. <laughs> well, you know... Admiral but, Rickover put one in a submarine. Took him four years to build. Okay. All right. This is a history contest. Yeah. Charles Brush in the year 1888 established the first wind plus battery farm on so, his on his home. He had a windmill outside. He had batteries in his basement. Why do we basement. need any subsidies at all? Wind plus batteries anything. is an 1888 technology. I just want to put that out there. Not a lot of people know that. Well, and who benefits from these subsidies. It's banks. You know, if you look at it, it's, you know, it's private equity. Boardrooms. It's boardrooms. Banks and boardrooms. But it's the emerging technologies that really have another layer of bureaucracy and competition to go through because of that government distorted uh, marketplace created by these subsidies for mature technologies. We've had geothermal startups very much criticizing the wind PTC and solar ITC, not talking about wanting a subsidy for their own technology, but simply talking about this is another hurdle for us to be competitive in the marketplace because all these subsidies are going to big banks uh, and and we just don't have the equity to take advantage of these tax credits. So it's a a very big problem for us. So yes, I want to get rid of them. I do think there are probably opportunities for next best policies to make them less intrusive that we would be supportive of. And again, that's a conversation for another time because another time, I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. And I'd rather make them less bad if possible. Do you want to abolish anything? In the government, any government agencies or departments or anything, anything at all. I can't think of one. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you, everyone. I'll go ahead, Travis. Jack's like, I can think of all of them. <laughs> I just was asking Nick that for fun. Privatized. Nick, you did awesome. Everything. I hope that you found it useful. This for... is great. All right. Uh-
Arga? No, I was just going to say I found it very useful. All right. <laughs> you could cut that out. Our last guest said that it was the most fun they've ever had on a podcast. So you Have you ever had you it? Was, it was probably only on one podcast. That's not nice at all. <laughs> now I'm going to change what I was going to say at the end. I was going to thank you. Hey, if anyone else has a podcast out there, don't get Nick Lorsey's ungrateful. <laughs> I'm kidding. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day today to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, Tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And as I always ask, even if you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis, Rachel, Nick, any final words? You can find The Power Hour anywhere you get your podcasts. Simply search The Power Hour Heritage, and you'll have access to our full episode library. And subscribe, right? We always forget to ask people to subscribe. Absolutely. Subscribe. Subscribe. Every week. You got a new one of these. Some weeks, too. Yeah, Two there you go. Week. Sometimes you get a bonus. And I just want to remind our followers, our loyal listeners, a.k.a. Jack's Power Pack, that we have an email address. And please email us. What is that email address? Thepowerhour at heritage.org. Can yeah. I say yeah. a couple things? Great. Uh, we have an online news magazine, c3newsmag.com. Check it out. We do a lot of our own writing. And we've had some folks from Heritage write for us in the past. And I hope to be invited back for one of the listener uh, questions episodes because I think those would be a lot of fun if I could come back and participate. Wait, is, are, are you a member of Jack's Power Pack? I don't know. What is that? Do I have to pay? No, that just means <laughs> no. We. <laughs> I can arrange for that. Let's, let's, I can give you my Venmo. Should I give my Venmo over the... <laughs> yeah. We don't charge anybody else, but let's start charging Nick. I might be president yeah, of the I was Power say, I'm not, I don't want to speak for Nick. But I think Nick might have been my very first member. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. Everyone, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. See y'all.